Hello, and welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is webinar episode 121, The Real God. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, including MP3 downloads and videos, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you all. And I want to share from Luke chapter 15. And if you have been listening to me over the years, you have heard me say those words many, many times. Um, I have spent over half a century studying, praying over Luke chapter 15. And I basically go back to it every year and preach a new series from it. And this time, this year, or maybe next year, I am going to write a book of my 50 years of praying over Luke 15. And so it's sort of burning in me, and I want to share some of that. Okay, Luke chapter 15, and of course, I would hope that you would read this chapter and get get its background, but let's just take a few words out of it uh, from chapter 15 and verse 5, which is the first parable of this chapter. There are three, par- maybe four parables here. The first one of the lost sheep, and it says that when the shepherd found the lost sheep, it says he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And then in verse 6, he comes home, he calls together his friends, neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Then the second parable, which is of the woman who lost and found the coin, in verse 9, she finds the coin, calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found the coin which I had lost. Then we come to the parable that is the centerpiece of the entire chapter and it's the one that everybody remembers and that is the one we call the parable of the prodigal son it's really the story of a lost son who is found and if there's any prodigal here it's the father's love and he um The the son comes home, the father runs and embraces him and clothes him with shoes and robe and ring and throws the party. And and so it it says in verse uh, 23, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry. This son of mine was dead, has come to life again. He was lost, has been found, and they began to be merry. So rejoice with me, rejoice with me. And then this one where we're dealing not with sheep and coins, but a real live human. In this story, Jesus says they threw a party and they began to be merry. And then, which is possibly the fourth parable about the elder brother who is so angry that such a party has been so angry that they're rejoicing over the return of this, his brother, 
And the answer that the father gives to that elder brother is in verse 32, where he says, and my translation says, we had to be merry. And um, other translations, they say, it is necessary that we be merry and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead, has been begun to live, was lost and has been found. And it's those words that um, they arrest me out of all the stories here, and we could tell the stories, but um, it's those words that are obviously the key to the entire chapter. Rejoice with me, I've found my sheep. Rejoice with me, I have found my coin. And notice that was not uh, some rejoicing in a back room, but calling in friends and neighbors, it says, to have them share, rejoice with me, rejoice with me, I have found, I have found. And then when the son comes home and the father runs to meet him, flings his arms around him, smothers him with kisses, and robes him, taking away the filthy robes of of what he'd been wearing in the far country, put shoes on his feet and so on. And then he says, we must throw a party. And in so doing, he involves the entire village, brings in the whole, not just friends and neighbors, but the whole village. And then the word, there's been this escalation from rejoice, rejoice. Now we're having a party and, and, and the rejoicing is getting very specific. And then the last words to that elder brother, it was necessary. What a word. It was necessary that we be merry and rejoice. Or, and it's a good uh, translation, we had to be merry and rejoice. Now the reason I have returned to this chapter year after year and prayed over it, asked for the Holy Spirit's revelation for, as I say, over half a century, and return to it still and find there things that I'd never seen before. I, I do that because it is a pivotal chapter in, in the Gospels. It, it's of all the parables that Jesus gave us, this parable, well, actually the three of them, because I suppose everybody is familiar with the lost sheep and certainly everybody is familiar with the prodigal son, or properly the lost son, and everyone feels, and sometimes I think they never connect with their feelings as to why they feel it, that there is something so beautiful here, the compassion of the father, the receiving back of the son. But I think we've got to go a lot deeper than that, and and we've got to connect at least with those feelings that I believe the Holy Spirit puts within us, and to find out what is going on here. You see, in this chapter, in these parables that Jesus is giving to us, he is explaining to us his mission. He's explaining to us why he is here. What is he doing? That's why it's, it's pivotal. It's vital. I've got to understand, Jesus is telling us the reason that he came and the reason that is behind everything that he says and does. 
it's here, right in these stories that he tells us. I say pivotal. I, I've, I've got to understand what he's saying. He is giving to us the heart of the gospel. Or as some people might say, the bottom line. This is it. You want to know the gospel? Here it is. You got it. And, and you, you have... It begins, and really the entire chapter is given. Jesus gave those parables in order to answer the religious leaders who were enraged at what they saw. And so we need to get the the context here. Jesus, in the eyes of all the people, And even some of these religious leaders had to grudgingly admit that God was with him. Nobody could do these wonders that they saw unless God was with him. That's what Nicodemus said as he represented the Pharisees to Jesus in John chapter 3. He says, we have to admit it, that God is with you. We're just totally confused. And so they saw him as a God with him man, you might say, saw him as a holy man. They saw him as a teacher of the things of God, a prophet. They saw and and said such. But now that one, now now get this. You see, this this is the heart of this entire chapter. Jesus, the holy man, in the eyes of the peasants of the Galilee, the holiest man they'd ever met or heard, a teacher that caused them to almost stutter and stumble in astonishment at what he said. And I quote the scripture there. He is sitting, says those first verses of Luke chapter 15, he's sitting with tax collectors. Now, um, we mustn't think of these tax collectors as IRS agents, um, although, well, I'll leave it at that, but um, these tax collectors, they were the betrayers of their own people. Tax collectors were Jewish people who had betrayed their Jewishness and had gone over to the Romans who were the army of occupation. They were, they were the oppressors that had come in and conquered and taken Israel. And these Jews went over to the enemy side and then were commissioned by the Roman government to come back to their Jewish brothers and sisters and take taxes. And those taxes were exorbitant, and the tax collectors would often add a little bit for their own pocket. And if you didn't pay, they were the ones who sent out their thugs to make sure you did pay. They, they were the loneliest men in Israel. They were also the richest men in Israel. They were the most despicable. They were the most hated that they had sold their soul to the devil for cash. And they were tax collectors. In the synagogue, every Sabbath day, the, the rabbi would announce, these are the people who can never be saved. And topping the list were tax collectors. 
They were known by name and hated by name. When Jews paid their taxes, which they had to do, they would spit in the face of these tax collectors and fling the money at them. Hate it. Hate it. And I, I would say, if we're looking for reasons, for very good reasons, these were men who were soulless. That They had come to the point where they had lost their soul for money. And here, Jesus, the holiest of persons that anyone knew, was sitting at table with a whole bunch of them. I, I, I would imagine you've got at least 20, 30 tax collectors from all over the Galilee, and, and they're, they're sitting in a public place. I say that because... Uh, the Pharisees were there. They were able to stand at a distance and watch what was going on. This wasn't done in a back room. It wasn't some secret meeting where you snuck in by a back door. This was somewhere out in the public eye. They're having a party at the table. There's laughter. Jesus is laughing and talking and there's merriment. They're having a jolly good time. Did you realize the scandal of this? Not only to the Pharisees who were, well, uh, you know, the Pharisees, they, they were so religious, they would hardly sit down and eat with a normal peasant. Um, but the, the idea in the minds of the Pharisees that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and along with the tax collectors, it says, and sinners, which meant people that had dropped out of the synagogue who were, were low life. And Jesus is eating with them. And of course, in ancient Israel, uh, eating with someone is very much so. Some of you who are listening to me outside of the U.S., um, you probably know more about this than we who live here that around the world, eating with someone is not just because you're hungry. That's an American idea, that, that you're eating because you're hungry, you stuff your face, you say hello to the chap next to you and get off and go. But not, not around the world, not in third world countries. No, to eat with someone is to enter into some kind of, of binding friendship it, it in actual time back in Israel it was called table fellowship and it meant that to eat bread together bound you together in a solidarity Jesus please please hear me Jesus sitting down to enter into and to do it publicly enter into solidarity with tax collectors People could hardly say the word without rage. This wasn't just the Pharisees that were upset. Anybody that looked would be horrified. His best friends would turn away and say, I don't believe it. I don't know how the disciples came and sat with Jesus. They must have been blushing and hiding their heads and wishing they were anywhere but here. Eating with tax collectors. And over there, within earshot, hearing everything with the Pharisees. 
You see, you, you would expect, at least one normally would expect, that if Jesus sat down with tax collectors, that there would be a great solemnity at the table and there would be a good deal of condemnation from Jesus to tell them what scoundrels they were. But the Pharisees don't see that. They don't hear that. Of course, it's not there. There's laughter. There's merriment. It's a party. And so the Pharisees stand aloof that look in their eye of religious arrogance and disgust. They're despising those tax collectors. In fact, they've never been this close to tax collectors, even if they're standing away from the table. The only time they got anywhere near them was to throw the tax money at them. They, they, they are cursing and damning in the name of God all who sat at the table. And you see, if Jesus sits at table and eats with them, then he is standing in solidarity with the shame that the Pharisees are hurling at them. He takes along with them the curses. He shares their being despised. And the fact is, this, this is so enormous that he sat with tax collectors. This was, and he knew it, this was actually paving the way to these religious leaders crucifying him. This was the beginning of the crucifixion. If he sits with tax collectors, then he's worthy of death. Now, okay. When they said he was the holiest man and a prophet... They were right, but far from the truth. Because the one who was sitting at table with these tax collectors, Jesus, is a lot more than the holiest man that ever lived. He's a lot more than prophet. He is, by his own confession, the unique and only Son of the Father. He is then, as we've said so often, God from God. Now, now, just a minute, you see. Prophets can make a mistake. This could be the biggest political gaffe that a prophet would ever make. But, but this is God from God. In fact, he announces in Matthew chapter 11 that he is the only one in the race of mankind who knows who the Father is because he has been in the Father and the Father in him from unbegun. In fact, John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus is the one who exegetes God. He is the one who takes the heart of God, ever invisible, and now has put it out for all to see, and said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Look at me. If you don't know what God the Father is like, look at me. I am God in flesh. I am God in words. I am God in action. Couldn't be plainer, could he? 
later on in the epistles it will say that Jesus is the exact image, the exact likeness, the visibilizing of the invisible God. So when we see Jesus sitting at a table with the most despicable of all persons, that's God. And when we hear them laughing and delighting in being at the table with him, that's God's party that's taking place. Now careful, you might begin to get as horrified as the Pharisees were because they were the leaders of a religion based on the Old Testament, you see. So this is the one the Old Testament called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when God is with us, we discover he's limitlessly for us. He's on our side. So here is God himself in Jesus, and he's sitting, eating at the table with those who were rejected as abominable characters by anybody who had any morality or any sense of spirituality, and he's sitting with them. That's the gospel. God has come in Jesus Christ and sits with us and takes a hold of us to bring us to that original meaning and purpose for which he created us. Or you could say again, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, I'm the light of the cosmos. And and when we say that, we mean in his light, the light that he sheds upon existence in that light all darkness is gone all distortion is gone in the light that Jesus is both source and the one who brings it in that light we see things as they really are not as our ancestors said they were not as we thought they were and it's shocking to see things as they really are and he reveals all of our wrong belief systems see he doesn't merely reveal that what I'm doing is wrong he gets all the way back to my belief system what I believe is truth in my heart because that's where my behavior comes from. So he doesn't deal primarily with behavior. He deals with heart issue. What do you believe? And in his light, in the light that Jesus is, he shows it up and shows all wrong belief systems. In that sense, he's the judge. But you have to understand that this judge is limitless love. And therefore, we are facing the no, non-condemning judge. Yes, he shows up. His light 
shows me up. His light goes into the deepest, darkest corners of my being, specifically things that I believe to be true. And in showing it up, he reveals that I'm all wrong-headed. I've got it all wrong. I'm backwards. What I believe is a distortion of the truth. But this judge, in showing to me that I'm wrong, does not condemn me. Rather, he reveals where we're wrong and he reveals truth, reality in himself. And so, Jesus responds to these Pharisees and anybody else standing around with stories. Oh, he's the master storyteller. And all of these things would have happened, sort of, around the hills and lake towns of the Galilee. People knew about lost sheep, they lost their coins. Boys went away and dishonored their father. These are stories they would be familiar, but they'd never heard them told like this. Never had they had the divine twist in them that shocked everybody as he told them. And in these stories, what does Jesus do? What's he telling us? You say, well, he's telling us about a sheep that, yes, I know. But that's really not what he was talking about. He was talking about the shepherd who counted the lost stupid sheep of such great worth that he would risk his own life to get the sheep. And saying implicitly, that's what God is like. And a woman who would turn out the whole house go into the darkest and dustiest corners of their house to find one coin that was lost. Jesus was saying that's what God is like. And then this story of all stories as the father runs and flings his arms around this son that now stinks of pig muck who hasn't had a bath in weeks, maybe months, whose clothes are rags and filth his hair matted, his face gaunt from near starvation, and the father hugs him, clings to him, and says, my son, my son. He says, and that's what God is like. These tax collectors, beyond all their behavior, they are lost, but they are precious to the father. And that's why the Father sent the Son in order to sit with these, come where they are, into the sheep's wilderness, into the coin's dirt, and come to this Son. This is what God is like. He's not at all like the God that you've been taught about. Your ancestors who taught you of a God who was in a rage, and could only delight in punishment. He said, God isn't like that. God flings his arms around you, weeps over you for sheer joy. And remember, Jesus is God, come to tell us what God is like in everything he did and everything he said. And so these parables are a report by God to reveal to us what God is like. 
Now this this introduces something else, and I'm only this is sort of in the background of what I'm saying. But when we say repent, everybody thinks it means going down a list of awful things you've done and say, Dear God help me, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. But really and truly, that's uh, that's not the issue, you know. The real thing is that these stories are doing is calling you and I to repent of everything that we believed that God was like when he wasn't like that at all. Repent. And that word means to radically change your mind. That's the meaning of the word repent. Change your mind. Change your mind about who God is and see him as the incredible lover that goes beyond all rational ideas of love and sits with tax collectors and hugs stinking boys that have rebelled. And what is faith? Basically, it's, it's believing this incredible God who reveals himself to us in Jesus. Believe him, rest in him, trust your life to him. I said, this is gospel bottom line. When Jesus was giving these stories, he was giving to us the revelation of God. That, that's the foundation of the kingdom of God. This is the foundation of living this life that is described in Scripture. You see, what is wrong with so many believers? They've never come to this. They've never come to face the basic that the God revealed in Jesus is unlike any God that's ever been described out of a human mind. No religion on earth could ever come up with a God like this. It took God to come from God to tell us what God was like. And he did that in Jesus. And you repent and believe that this is the true God. And you'll find your behavior changes. And you, you will find that this God indeed is your righteousness. And so Jesus in these stories is destroying false foundations. To the question, who is your God? Jesus is destroying all false answers. All those dark and twisted concepts that persons have concerning the nature of God. And he destroys them with these stories in order to bring us to the limitless life and liberty freedom that we were created for. These stories, they bring us out of, what shall I call it, that legalistic religious safety zone where we, because of our blindness, are secure and comfortable in bondage. Brings us out. See, we, we say, well, we want peace and joy, and Jesus gives peace and joy. Well, that's true, but he does not give us peace while we are holding on to a false concept of God. 
or a Bible word for a false concept of God is idol, idolatry. It's, it's saying God is what he isn't. And he will never give us peace and he will never give us joy while we are believing that God is other than he really is. Or two throw into this story the father did not deal with the problem of his son by sending weekly allowances to him in the far country no that in our life sometimes our life collapses because everything we have thought about God is not so well God doesn't send us peace to help us along while our life collapses it collapsed for a jolly good reason that we had the wrong God and were ordering our life around the wrong God a God of human invention you don't send spending money to somebody who's on the Titanic you rescue them or to put it this way, we do not accept Jesus to feel better. Let me, let me put it like this. Accepting Jesus, that is you know, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the revealer of the Father. Uh, quite frankly, in the, in the immediate moment of that is not to make you feel better. It is because foundations will then be destroyed. You cannot accept Jesus while believing in this other monstrous God that religion has created. So to believe Jesus is to have what we thought were foundations, he's going to destroy them in order to create in us a new foundation of a new life that we shall learn to live. So these parables throw light, oh, throw light, they are blinding light upon who he really is, what he's really doing. In, incidentally, we call them parables, and I've, I've heard some kind of sweet, sicky definitions like a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. No, 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 no. No, a parable, a parable is meant to upset you. A parable is meant to shock you. Shake your head and say, did I hear that? Parables are stories that are meant to pull the rug out from under you and show you reality is not like you thought it was. Parables are divine wisdom revealing the true meaning of life. And so here he is, speaking to the despised guests at his table, the tax collectors. And in these stories, they discover their worth. Any tax collector listening to Jesus would immediately relate to being the lost sheep and the lost coin, and certainly relate to being this lost son. And so these parables to the tax collectors were almost too good to be true. They couldn't imagine. <laughs> Religion had spent their every moment telling the tax collectors they were doomed and unwanted and abandoned. And here they're hearing with the authority of the God-man, Jesus, that they are 
of such worth that God would come to find them, that they are beloved. And the audience, on the other hand, were the Pharisees, declaring, just by their looks and their undertoned statements, that God hates these tax collectors and he wills to destroy them. And by this time they're including Jesus in their intent of destruction. They saw themselves as too holy to sit beside the tax collector because you understand, according to the Pharisees, that sin was contagious, infectious. You catch it if you hang around these people. So these stories, these beautiful stories, you realize, I hope by this point, They are actually an act of war. Jesus, in these stories of Luke 15, is declaring war upon the kind of religion that was bound up in these Pharisees. And I come back to what I said at the beginning, the key words, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. And that builds through the parables. Rejoice with me is building until the last verse said it is necessary to be merry and to rejoice. We had to. This word necessary, I don't think I need to define it. I think we all know what it means, but I'll just throw some things out. When we say something is necessary, yeah, as in my translation here, we just had to do it. I had to. There were no options. It was necessary. And so necessary, it means an urgent response to a situation. It has to be done. Necessary. It means this is the only right and proper and fitting action to do in response to what we're seeing here. Or we would say necessary, it just, it must be done. It's necessary. It's the only logical thing to do. Necessary. It means that we've got to do this without having any second thoughts about it. There's no time to sit down and debate it. It's necessary. No, no questions, no second thoughts. Do it. It's necessary. We had to. We had to. So Jesus is saying, in his mission to reveal who God is, and the gospel that's contained in that revelation, Jesus is saying, it is necessary that I sit with tax collectors, the most despised persons who are the living definition of sin, to these people, it's necessary that I sit with them, put my hand on the table, and enter into a covenant of friendship with them, to stand in solidarity with them. It's necessary. It means that Jesus was not committing some terrible mistake. You know, today, if you're talking about a politician, they talk about his handlers, Those who tell him you can say this, you can't say that. Uh, The polls say this, so say this. You know all that stuff. Well, Jesus didn't have that. But if he had, they would have gone nuts. They would have resigned on the spot. You've blown it. 
There is no way, no way that anybody will ever listen to you after this. This is the, the, the craziest thing you've ever done. In public, you sat down and ate with tax collectors. But Jesus, in the stories that explain what he was doing, he said it was necessary. That is, what I'm doing is not a religious gaffe. This is not just a footnote to the gospel or P.S. This chap sat down and ate with tax No, 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 no. This, this isn't just a sort of odd, weird thing that Jesus did to hang out. No, Jesus said this is fundamental. It was necessary. I had to do it. I have to do it. This is the divine must of the Holy Trinity. The Father... The Father's love. It is necessary that the Father's love embraces the people that even the most moral among us cannot stand. The Son who perfectly revealed the Father. It was necessary that He sat with these despicable people. The divine must that the Holy Spirit comes to such as this and reveals to such persons as this the love that God is. It's a vital part, vital, foundational part of knowing what God is like. It's the divine necessity of God's love that He publicly stands in solidarity with sinners declaring that God love reaches into them that God reaches out and puts his arms around them that God is their friend a necessity that, that is not done as a burden but celebrated with dancing and music and feasting and done in public like the whole world. No, this is not something done in a corner. This is who God is and he wills that the whole world knows it. And because it was done in public, it was indelibly imprinted on the minds of the people. They never forgot that. Sit with us. Enjoy us. Delight in us. You see, that's why we were created. This love-friendship relationship between the Creator and you and I, His creation, is the original purpose behind creation. That you and I should be brought by the wonder of this creative love that we who are creatures should be actually placed into relationship with the Holy Trinity, joined in that with Jesus. What Jesus was doing here is just a micro picture of what we were created for. And of course... Father and Son and Holy Spirit have taken the initiative to achieve that end. Even though we, like this Son, have left 
walked away, we're going to have our own life and find life within ourselves and our senses. God will not give us up, and so he comes for us in Jesus. The Holy Spirit pursues us relentlessly in love in order to bring about this relationship. You see, yes, the gospel is pardon. The gospel is forgiveness. Yes, yes, yes. But please don't leave it there. I mean, the gospel is not that we get a letter from the governor to say that we're pardoned. No, that still leaves us with unease and shame. And nor did Jesus come merely to change our behavior. The gospel is not behavior modification. He came to sit with us in relationship and enter into covenant with us and draw us into this heart of limitless divine love so that we might know the Father knowing his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit would flood us with light and pour this love into our hearts that we would experience him that's the gospel you're forgiven yes but forgiven in order to boldly walk into such a relationship that is being imaged here and out of that relationship yes my behavior changes for sure it does And that's what Jesus is doing here. This is a micro picture of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And these tax collectors are the heart of mankind put out on display. Most people can hide who they are. But these tax collectors had stepped over the line. It's all out in the open. And for God so loved the world. That's what he was doing here. He gave his only begotten son. Yes, and he's sitting at table with these. And what, the next verse, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but he sent his son that the world might be saved. There's this feast that it was happening with the tax collectors. It is mirrored in these stories that Jesus explained what he was doing, it shows the satisfaction of the Father's heart. This sitting with the tax collector was the beginning of a journey for the tax collectors. They've probably got a long way to go yet before they can finally see that love and respond to that love. But, yeah, it's happening. It's happening. Jesus said, rejoice with me. Let us be merry In fact, it's necessary that we are so. This necessary joy, the joy of God, must be shared. Let laughter, God laughter and joy infect the whole neighborhood. He throws it, let everyone come to this feast and join in the joy of the Father's heart that he's begun to get a hold on the hearts of these people. Let everyone see how Father sees. God, what what have I just said? Let everyone see 
one another as the Father sees them. Wow. Let everyone think about each other as the Father thinks about us. Let everyone share together in the longing of God for fellowship with us. And so the Father in this story put his arms around his Son, as I said, bearing all the marks of his life in a far country. And he says, you are my son. Reconciled. Finally, the son has seen his father has never stopped loving him. A love relationship is beginning. A new freedom. The father had never seen his son as separated in the father's eyes, there had always been a chair at the table. For when his son came home, he had never seen that his son was now so cut off he could never come back. The son, this prodigal we call him, he was lost. He didn't know who he was, where he was, or where he came from. He was totally confused. He believed that he was no longer his father's son believed his father had no more time or place for him. But when the elder brother tried to have a court case, that, as I say, is probably the fourth parable here about the elder brother, and, and he wants to present, he, he, he's the prosecutor, and he brings the guilt, this scumbag, he did this, he did this, he did this. And he ought to guilt, shame, punishment. But the father, huh, he ignored the elder brother's word. The, the, the elder brother brings an indictment. And if Jesus was the judge, he, he, he puts the, the words in the father's mouth. And, and so I'm hearing what Jesus would say. And, and it's as if the judge lost the indictment where did it go it's lost case dismissed turn the courtroom into a party and let us celebrate love's triumph but my son is home the father has never been embarrassed or ashamed of his son remember he ran out to meet the returning son in the eyes of the whole village no he wasn't embarrassed to put his arms around this character and put his mouth onto that filthy skin and kiss him and kiss him and kiss him. He's not ashamed. Hear me. He identifies and he joins his name to that son. He says, this scarecrow of a human being, but he's my son. And he shared with him his best robe and he put his shoes on his feet and he put the family ring on his hand. And Jesus was saying that was necessary because that's the way God is and God can never be other than he is. Yeah, you say, where's the justice? Where's the judgment? Well, number one, you really, before you say that, you should understand how the Hebrew people in the Bible 
the meaning of the word justice and judgment, it, it means essentially to put things right. That's what it means. That's the mean. Look in a dictionary, uh, Hebrew dictionary. Justice and judgment used in the, it means that set things in order, set things right. Said it. They, they they were. If you'd have seen the prodigal walking towards you, you would have gone the other side of the road. It's the same way as the people treated these tax collectors. Jesus said, "I've come to set it right." They, these people, they've got it wrong. They've got it wrong. They're lost in their darkness. I've come to set things right. It is necessary that I embrace them that I stand in solidarity with them, and when they're cursed, I'm cursed, and when they're shamed, I'm shamed. It's necessary that it's done in public, that the world knows what the heart of God is like. Because, you see, this party with tax collectors, when it came to full bloom, when this little sapling in Luke 15, became a great tree. What was it? It was the cross. Where Jesus stood in solidarity with you and me and every other human being. And our sin and our curse and our shame. He accepted it as his own. The same as he did at this table in the Galilee, which was just a micro picture, now has come to fullness when he really did stand in solidarity with us. And the laughter of that party was the first sounds of the resurrection which was the divine joy and rejoicing, the laughter of the Holy Trinity triumphant. That he stood in solidarity with us and cleansed us from our sin and placed his spirit within us and caused us to sit with him in the heavens at the party of all parties, which is called life in the spirit. So this party is, is just the beginning of the beginning of the introduction. It's the prototype of the kingdom of God that you and I are now in. So he calls us to repentance. Repentance, a radical change of mind regarding who God is. What is he like? And then to trust, commit our lives to that love that is revealed to us in Jesus. And I know, I'm talking to friends, more than friends, I'm talking to people who are one with me in this ministry. There's a sense in which I'm talking to myself. I always see myself when I come to this chapter. You see, we are all infected with the Pharisee virus. That is the, the, the darkness of the prince of this world. And, and, and it, in, it, it gets into you. It's, what can I say? You, have you ever been in a house in the desert when there's a sandstorm? 
I have. Put the towels along the windows and under the door, trying. It doesn't matter. Before long, you're tasting the sand in your mouth. We are in this world and we are forever to return to this and keep ourselves, says Jude. Keep ourselves in the love of God. Keep a renewed mind that we might know God in His extreme love. And have the blood of Jesus cleanse us from the foul lies of Satan that blind and deafen us to the truth. You see, Christianity is not only but no, let me rephrase that. Christianity is not the best religion. Christianity is the only good news of relationship for which we were created. And so, dare to believe it. And I know, I, I know you know this, yet I feel compulsion to say it. No. Sit down and know that you are embraced by the Holy Trinity. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit delight in you. Calls you a child of God. Proclaims your forgiveness. And welcomes you home into this relationship. I have many times spoken of something that was in Reader's Digest many, many, many years ago, decades ago. They did a poll of what are the words, what words would you want someone to say to you? And overwhelmingly the first words that people wanted to hear was, I love you. And coming in close second were the words, I forgive you. But it was those that came in third that I've never forgotten. The third words that everybody wanted someone to say to them was, supper's ready. <laughs> I love you, I forgive you, and supper's ready. There's the gospel. God comes when you feel that you're beyond hope and he sits with you, delights in you and says, I love you. And he looks into your eyes and he says, I forgive you. And then he says, welcome home. Supper's ready. Come into the relationship of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And may the Lord himself bless you as these words, I pray, invade your very heart.